Hi, everybody. It is, uh, what's the date today? I believe it's the 20th. Yes, it is. The 20th of December, 2019. This is episode 11 of the Luke Thomas live chat. Naturally, that makes me Luke Thomas. Without further ado, let's get this going. All right. Hope you're doing well. Happy holidays to you. Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa, uh, to all of our Jew- Jewish brothers and sisters. Uh, happy Hanukkah, whenever that starts. I'm not entirely certain, but it is y'all's time of year. It is my time of year. It is everyone's time of year. So uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, all that good stuff. Appreciate you guys tuning in. In fact, this will be the last chat we do, chat we do before uh, thanks, or Thanksgiving, Christmas, which I think is on Wednesday. I think that's right. I've not done all my Christmas shopping yet, so... I'm a little bit behind the times. Uh, what will we get to today? I don't know. Some of that talk, I suppose. Uh, let's see. A lot of UFC 245 leftovers. Some Star Wars talk, maybe. Uh, now, I put impeachment in the headlines because here's what I do. When I make the title for the video, I look in the tab of the questions, and I see what you guys have sort of at the top. There's a couple of impeachment questions. Uh, I said we'd get to it if you want. If we don't end up getting to it, then I'll take it out afterwards so that you know, there's no false advertising. So I um, just want to point that out. But if we get to it, then I'll keep it in there. Uh, as always, like the video, as you can see here. Subscribe. Subscribe to the here we go. Subscribe to the channel. All that good stuff. Need need some subscriptions. Trying to hit 115k before the end of the year. I don't know if we'll make it. My videos are all very feast or famine. Like I'm making good money off of YouTube. But uh, I'll have one video that does like, it brings in thousands of viewers, and then I'll have like five videos in a row that bring in two. So uh, help me get there. Subscribe. Tell your friends about it. All that good stuff. Um, apologies for not getting last week's recording up. I forgot to record it natively to my computer. And then sometimes it takes a long time for YouTube to render it. That makes it available for download. And then by that time, the fights were over, and I was like, ah, fuck it. But I'll get it. I'm, I'm recording natively right now. I can see. So I'll make sure to get all those up. Um, when we get going, I've got not one but two caffeinated drinks. Got to finish my Starbucks. If you're asking what my t- typical Starbucks order is, do they have it on here? No, I guess they don't. It's a venti pike with room. That's it. That's all I do. Sometimes I put a little bit of Splenda in it. No, well, I always put Splenda in it. Sometimes I put milk in it. This one has no milk in it. So that's it, man. I don't get your your lattes or your fraps, all that bullshit. I just like a straight cup of Joe. With that in mind, all right, let's get to the questions, shall we? Make sure everything looks good here on my end, too. Everything's, oh, yes, humming. All right, very good, very good. Oops, community. Okay, let's get to your questions, and of course, let's see what we got here. 181 comments, 132 likes, very good, y'all. Really appreciate it. I love doing this. Can I just say how glad I am that this thing is back, this live chat? I really enjoy doing it. In fact, I look forward to Friday mornings. A lot more than I ever looked forward to, like Wednesday. I don't know why. Like I was sort of burned out when we were doing the live chat on MMA fighting, but feel so much better doing it here now. I love it. I'm at home. I mean, I was at home before, of course, but um, I don't know. Really look forward to, to Friday mornings. Really appreciate everyone's participation. Really appreciate y'all's questions, challenges, smart ass remarks, the whole nine. With that in mind, all right. No more hemming and hawing. Let's get. Th- oh, by the way, I interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson this morning. It was okay. It was okay. I'll play it on the show later today if you listen to my serious radio show. All right. Question one. It's got 27 likes. All right. How can a power athlete like Usman have cardio levels of an endurance athlete? I thought you can't have both. Well, that is a question for somebody who has significantly more. It's funny, though. 
That is somebody who's got uh, a lot more expertise than me. I will say I just bought this book. I've not read but a couple of pages, so I don't want to say that I've read a whole bunch of it. Uh, Scientific Principles of Strength Training. Shouts to my guy. i got to get the lighting adjusted. Shouts to my guy, uh, Chad Wesley Smith. Mike Isretel as well. Uh, I don't know James Hoffman, but I've had Chad Wesley Smith in studio. Mike Isretel as a PhD, uh, I think out of Temple. I could be wrong about that. Um, in any event, these are guys that trained BJJ, but they were, in the case of Chad Wesley Smith, a world-level power lifter. And they wrote this whole book on the scientific principles of strength training. You can see I rested my coffee on it a couple of times. Um, ask them. They might have a better idea for you, but that's not anything I can really... I would just be making up something, unfortunately, and I don't have a whole lot of answer for you. The kind of training that goes into, you know, VO2 max, cardiovascular, you know, aerobic output, I've got no relationship. I mean, I got a little bit of an understanding, a little bit of an understanding of strength training, but I don't have anything when it comes to that. Oops, let me change this back. Sorry. Take that off. So, unfortunately, I cannot answer the very first question, but um, perhaps you can, perhaps in giving you these names, I can put you on a path to get them answered by somebody who could. All right. Hi, Luke. Big fan from Ontario. Thank you. Uh, I don't mean to take anything from Covington. Like him or not, the dude is a tough bastard, and he showed all the heart on Saturday. But when Colby told his corner that his jaw was broken, should they have spared him from the rest of the fight right there on principle? If not then, where is that line? That's a good question. You know, I have not thought about that. Um... All right, well, let's think about that for a second. That's actually a really great question. Did they have a medical responsibility, an ethical responsibility, to stop the contest? All right, well, a couple of reasons why you might want to say yes would be that's a very serious injury that you wouldn't want to exacerbate. Um, two, if they felt like he couldn't win fighting that way and they were just sending him out there to take a beating, that would have been a reason to pull him. But, of course, what they did was they sent him back out there and when did he break it? Second, third round? I mean, he still was winning the fight. Not winning the fight, but he was he was competitive at least up until that fifth round. I know the third round was Kumaru's, but I didn't think he was out of the fight or something. Like, if I didn't know about it and you were watching it, you would have just thought, okay, these guys are banging each other around. But he didn't seem, like, out of it, out of it. Um, but anyway, you would have taken that into consideration. And then... Um, yeah, I think those would have been your two biggest priorities there. Can he still compete, or would he? Or are we just sending him to slaughter? Or even if he could compete, are we risking real injury here, significant lasting injury by doing this? And I guess that they felt like in the case of either of them, they weren't. The other factor you have to consider here is if it was just a three-round fight, they might have just waved it off. If it was a – I mean, this was a title fight. They're going to push the limits of what is acceptable as a, in terms of medical intervention – um, I don't think it's, an, I don't think it's a bad question. It's a good question. Um, but the real key there is those two considerations. Can he still fight? And what kind of long-term damage are we risking here? To me, even if you have a jaw that's not broken, but you did what Raquel Pennington did, which is turn around and say, I'm done, you know, trying to coax her back into it. That was such a mistake. I don't care what their corner says. Um, that was clearly a mistake. If you thought Colby was telling you that his jaw was broken as a way to uh, get out of the fight, that would be something you consider. But it didn't. There's just no indication that that was the case. I think he was just telling them because he was, you know, understandably a little bit worried about it, but not in the kind of way where he wanted out. Um, so that's a good question. 
It's a good question. You know, I'm a big believer that we don't stop enough fights when we're supposed to. But the key for me is, are they taking a beating when they don't need to? Are they taking a kind of beating that can alter their career, a la David Loazzo, Rich Franklin? And is this the kind of injury that, while a bad, not the kind of thing that, A, can prevent them from winning, or B, would have significant long-term consequences? Um, these are hard decisions to make in a corner. I think I understand that. I think you know they understand that certainly better than I do. Very, very difficult. In their mind, all they're trying to do is just prep him to get back out there, you know? Um, but it's a fair question. It's a very fair question. And you know what? You're the first person I've seen bring this up. That's a good one. The question is, uh, rest of that fight there, right there on principle. Yeah. There, where's the line? Yeah, the line is those, those considerations I think I brought up. There might be some other ones as well, but those seem to be chief among them. Is Tony versus Habib the greatest fight of all time? Well, it can't be the greatest fight of all time until it's happened, but is it one of the greatest fights on paper? Yes. At least, again, on paper. We have to see what, I mean, what if, what if Khabib goes in there and just ragdolls him? I'm not suggesting that that's the likeliest outcome, but let's just say that happens. Is it still the greatest fight of all time? Like, no. On a competitive level, both lightweight goats, no. 12-win streak versus 12-win streak. Actually, it's longer than that, but yeah. The only fight which can compare is Tony versus Khabib to is Fader versus Krokop back in the day. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to, uh, you know, again, we need to see it happen. But this goes back to these questions I always get, like, oh, what's your fantasy matchup, blah, 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 blah. And I always tell people, like, this is the one. Tony versus Habib is one. But in general, you kind of get what you want if you're an MMA fan. Not totally, you know. You know, it doesn't look like we're going to get the rematch between Cejudo and uh, Benavidez. Okay. Um, but in general... You know, you get more or less the fight that's fights that you want to get. You get a lot of fights that you didn't think were possible as well. You get a lot of crossover. So I don't really, uh, I don't really daydream in that kind of a way. And perhaps that's a lack of imagination, but I just, I just don't. I don't really have to worry about it too much, right? In the case of this one, you know, I've just, ne- and I've said it before, I've just never seen a fight that has fizzled this many times that left the UFC no choice but to not move on. They couldn't go anywhere. They had to keep pursuing this one. They had to dig deep and figure out a way. Like, we, we just can't let this one go. And it's because, to the point you raised, they have the, not merely these win streaks, but the win streaks against who? They've beaten everybody basically around them. You know, Dustin Poirier hasn't fought uh, Tony yet, and there's a couple guys that haven't fought Habib yet. But in general, they have beaten the very best of their generation, often mercilessly. And so, every time they tried to make it and it fizzled, you think, well, we'll just go in a different direction. But you can't, because both of them are headed to the top on a collision course. That is so unusual, man. You know, these guys haven't lost in the case of Habib ever. In the case of uh, Tony Ferguson, what, 2012 or something? You know, in the, in, the, in the lightweight division, this is unheard of, man. This is unheard of. And it is, you know, I don't know if the fight's going to live up to the billing. At this point, how can it, right? I mean, maybe it can. We'll see. But, um. But that is so unique. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. I don't know if I'm ever going to see anything like that again. Even if you see it in another division where guys have rematches and stuff, it's not the same thing. You know, five times they tried to make it. You know, guys' careers go like this. You know, I, I made a point on my Instagram about, you know, Amanda Nunes, and the guys were like, oh, well, she lost to Kat, and she lost to Valentina the second time. And we'll see if there's a third fight with Valentina, because I agree that um, she should have lost to Valentina, but she didn't, right? But the point about Kat, it's like, who would you favor in a cat versus Amanda rematch? I'll pick Amanda 10 times out of 10. You know, the, the, to have that kind of longevity, to have the ability to beat somebody. You know, look at the guys who beat Colby early in his career. We, you, don't, you don't think Colby can beat 
Varley Alves for a second time? I bet he could. Right? And so the point being is these guys, when 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 people's careers go like this and then dip, theirs just didn't. It just didn't. And it did it in the toughest division, not just merely in the UFC, but like globally. You know, lightweight is just a strong division no matter where you go. It's just it's just crazy. It's crazy how good they are. Uh, do you personally have any moral qualms about covering a Connor fight? Well, he has two open sexual assault cases against him. He does not have any cases against him. I'm not suggesting you should. I just always wonder how someone draws a line in your line of work where it would be potentially devastating to not cover a major event. Does Sirius or Showtime get any say? Or was it, was it within your power to control your content? Conversely, is it different or the same that the UFC is promoting the fight? Okay, well, there's a bunch of different questions in here. Let's line them up first. Um, does Sirius or Showtime get any say? Showtime would not. Uh, Sirius would. If they really wanted to make me go cover it, they could. I can't, there's not a thing I could say no. Showtime, I have a... Sorry, let me scoot in a little bit more. Showtime, I have a little bit more discretion, just the way the contracts work. I'm a full-time employee with Sirius. I'm contract with Showtime, so I, ha- I just have a greater degree of latitude. Uh, but if but if Sirius was like, no, you're going, I can't just say no. I mean, if I really pitched a case, I could get them to relent. But if the if the ultimate thing was my boss said you're going, then it's either you go or you lose the job. So there's that, All right? Uh, do I have any moral qualms about it? Sure, but let's. I mean, look, this isn't to this isn't to downplay what is alleged about Connor, right? What is alleged about Connor is very serious. Two different cases, and if you read what is reported about them in Irish media, which in their case is you know famous Irish sports star, the details are not awesome, right? The details are not insignificant. They're bad. Uh, you add on top of that the cell phone incident, which by itself is no big deal, but then the bus with the dolly, um, punching the old man in the head, jumping into the cage, pushing a referee and, and uh, other uh, officials. You know, there's a there's an unsettling pattern here. So um, it's not to dismiss what, uh, A, we know to be true, which is all of his various fuck-ups in public, and then, two, the severity of what is alleged, but alleged... Dude, you got to play that one the right way. If it is alleged, you can't ignore it. And I think on occasion it has to be mentioned. But you can't treat it like the dude is guilty. You just can't. You can't. You can't go in there and say, oh, well, we know for a fact he did this stuff because, hey, anybody who would jump into a cage and throw a dolly at a bus and is alleged to have done these other crimes surely must have done them. That's not evidence, man. I mean, pattern is interesting, but it's not evidence. And... I realize there's also some greater circumstances, which is that apparently rape cases in Ireland are very hard to prove given the the way their laws are constructed. I understand that. Uh, I'm not here I, again. There should be an open conversation about all of this. But am I going to go in there and treat the guy like he's been convicted of sexual assault? No. No, it's not fair. The guy is presumed innocent until proven guilty, and allegations are not proof. Uh, there has to be a process by which this, the situation is resolved. And I, I know that's probably uh, uncomfortable for some. Um, <laughs> you got to let the system play. I mean, the, the, the rules are what the rules are, man. So I don't think th- th- there's sort of two positions. One is that in every case, you have to mention it, mention it, mention it. I don't think that's true. On the other hand, there's a lot of folks being like, well, if they're just allegations, you can ignore them. Mm, I don't think that's true either. Uh, and how you thread that needle, there's going to be different different ways. If I do a preview video, 
like X's and O's, I, I will not bring it up. If I just talk about what the implications for a division, uh, you know, what it means for lightweight, what it means for welterweight, I will not bring it up. If I, what it means for Connor and his mindset heading into this fight, I think a mention, I don't think you have to dwell on it, but I think a mention is relevant. And I think a mention, frankly, is important. You know, you're coming to the United States, the biggest newspaper in the world, certainly in this country, uh, in terms of its scope and its news gathering operations, has named you in not one but two different cases. You can't, you can't not mention that, dude. You can't not mention his, his own manager had to go on ESPN and deny all of it. Um, to say that this is not relevant at all is simply not true. It is a public fact that the reports came from the New York Times. Um, so you have to acknowledge that. Um, but holding it against him in the way that it would that you're assuming he's guilty, well, that seems unethical to me. So what I would treat it as something to keep an eye on, something to mention about his, the state of his career, something to mention about the way in which the UFC handles these kinds of things. But when you get to X's and O's and you start talking matchmaking and you start talking about championship belts and all the stuff that the sport really is, I don't think it's relevant in that particular form of the conversation. And I will not bring it up there. Uh, okay, of all the current title fights booked for 2020, which one are you most looking forward to? Khabib Tony, I mean. End of discussion. But here's the ones you list. Jones-Reyes, I got my eye on that one. Reyes, I think, is going to outperform how people think. Adesanya Romero, let's see if they make it. Uh, Shevchenko Chukagian. And then uh, Zhang Joanna. Yes, very, very interested in that one. So I'd say I have a high level of interest. Highest in Khabib Tony. Next in Joan Reyes. Next in Zhang Joanna. Adesanya Romero sort of hanging in the balance. I don't know what the, the you know, what's going to happen there. And then Shevchenko Chukagian. Uh, your Wikipedia says that you had ambitions of becoming a fighter, but injuries derailed those plans. Is this true? No. It's not true. Fake news. Assuming this is not fake news, please elaborate on how far you got before the injuries. Thank you. There was an article written about me in the Washington City paper by a great reporter, Dave McKenna. I don't know where our wires got crossed because I can swear affirmatively on the uh, spirit of my mother that never once did I tell him that I had any ambitions of becoming a fighter. I, I had been training hardcore at the time. But, you know, it was like, dude, you start going to those classes and, yeah, you can beat up if you're my size or whatever. You can beat up on the average donk who comes in off the street. But then you start rolling with these dudes who do it competitively, and you're like, whoa, you know, not the same. And then, like, you leave the gym, they're still there. You show up to the gym, they're already in their third, fourth class. I mean, like, it was – it was not that I had any, any designs on it, but I, I'm just saying it was clear in my mind there's, there's divisions inside this gym. And then when you realize, like, some of these guys are still just amateurs, you're like, no, 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 no. Not going to happen. I don't know where the lines got crossed there, but let me tell you affirmatively – Fake news. Not true. Uh, let's see. Luke, is it true that you went juggernaut on a certain sneakerhead allegedly report? Why are y'all being so crazy? All right. On a more serious note, thank you. I've often been curious as to the differences in demographics between MMA and boxing. Good question. I noticed that many jujitsu gyms in my area tend to be located in more suburban areas where the average household income tends to be a little higher than the inner cities. Could that play a role? Well, sort of. Although, I think that your sense of things is actually a little bit backwards. Um, okay, a couple things. Boxing typically uh, appeals, again, we don't want to overstate trends, but this is generally true. 
boxing uh, has a much higher degree of African-American and Latinos who watch it relative to MMA. Obviously, you know, plenty of whites and other types who like it, Asians or whatever, but uh, in general has a much stronger foothold in those communities. You know, I was just there for the Charlo Hogan fight. The Irish showed up for him, which was kind of interesting, Mr. Hogan. But, um, you know, the the native African-American population in... Um, in Brooklyn came out for Charlo, who's not, you know, natively from Brooklyn. He's from Houston. So that was interesting. Um, I don't think I've ever seen any UFC crowd with that many black people in it, right? I mean, they're, the, boxing and the black community are, you know, they are united. That's the same here in this city as well, Washington, D.C. Like, the best fighters to come out of here are traditionally, at least in terms of prize fighting, have been uh, boxers. Mark Tushar Johnson, Lamont Peterson, um, more recently, Jarrett Hurd. You know, we've had some other ones here, like Mike Easton, who did well in the UFC for a time, but um, not to the same level. And there's been some other ones too, but you get the idea. Um, so, in part, because there is a more youth-based system in boxing, I think, which is better as a recruitment tool early for disadvantaged or at-risk youth. Um, you know, we all know the stories about how, and I don't want to, I don't want to over-correlate the relationship between economic disadvantages and the African-American population, I mean to simply say in urban centers, that appears to be the population that is most heavily recruited for boxing. So given that that's the case, um, uh, you know, there's just a strong tie. And in MMA, you have to understand there's a bit of a difference. One, if you want to have an MMA school, you tend to need actual real estate, Right? You actually need space. You need a space to roll. You need a space for heavy bags. You might need a cage. You might need a ring. Maybe you don't need all those things, but you need some of them. You need more real estate. Real estate in the suburbs typically now is going to be a little bit cheaper than in urban centers. There is a, I won't say a, dec well, yeah, a bit of a decline in suburbia. Um, when I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, suburbia was seen as a haven of growth and uh, affluence relative to the decline of urban centers. That That relationship has... Uh, steadily inverted. Now it's urban centers that are uh, the ones, that, not all of them, of course, but many that are growing while, while the suburbs are being somewhat drained a little bit of not really their population centers, but um, they are their, their existing tax base. And anyway, long story short, there's still plenty of suburbs that are doing well, but rent is cheaper. Uh, here in my area, the two affluent counties to the north would be Montgomery County in Maryland, Fairfax County in Virginia. And these are affluent areas, but the real estate there is not as expensive as it is here. So, for example, here's a here's a little fact. Go to any gym in New York City and then ask whether or not that's the best gym you could go to if you went to one of the outer boroughs. And what you find is that the gyms in Brooklyn, Queens, and Bronx are almost universally better. Why? Because the real estate is cheaper. Uh, it's still expensive, of course, but it, they have much more space to do things. Um, there are some nice big gyms in New York City, but the best ones, dude, Manhattan's just too expensive. It's just crazy expensive. So if you're going to have an MMA gym in the city, and again, there are some, you're going to have to charge an exorbitant amount of money. Who are the people that can do that? They're going to be the, the product of affluence. And to be clear, that will cut across, cut across genders. It will cut across, cut across races. Uh, it'll cut across any number of different demographics, but it just has a bit of a weeding out tool where you go to these boxing gyms in these urban centers, and they have Spartan gyms. There might be duct tape on the heavy bag, and you got some old guy who's barely sweeping the floor, and the gym smells, but you don't really need anything else. Man, I'll never forget this. I one time went to the Headbangers gym in Washington, D.C. This was uh, kind of broke my heart, to be honest with you, if I can tell you, be honestly. Um, i never seen anything like this. 
uh, and I'm sure this is true in other parts of the world where the MMA relationship to um, uh, the amount of money that you have is different. And jiu-jitsu schools are expensive too, by the way. You need a gi, right? Uh, they need a kids program. There's all kinds of stuff. But I went to the Headbangers gym one time, and this was when Lamont and his brother were still, Peterson, were still um, pretty active. This must have been, God, what fight was that? I can't remember. But I went to the gym to, uh, or sorry, I went to the gym, I filmed his open workout, and then I went to go wash my hands in the bathroom. And I had seen there was like another student who was like super muscular. I had seen there was another student who was hitting the heavy bag, and uh, African-American kid, and... Um, you know, he looked athletic, looked like he was either a high-level amateur or low-level pro. I'm not sure. He had the raggediest shoes. His his gloves were fucked up. His bag was, you know, had holes in it. And I remember he went to the bathroom and was washing. He was naked. <laughs> and uh, he was washing all of his clothes in the sink. There was no shower there. He was washing his clothes in the sink, and then he was showering in the sink. And then he put on clothes that, like, a white T-shirt... And, uh, like, white pants. Like, it looked like he was going to some kind of place either to be a low-level chef or maybe bus tables or some some kind of, you know, job where you're working by the sweat of your brow, man. And uh, I saw him get on the metro right from there. There's the, the Navy Yard metro stuff right there by Nat Stadium. And uh, and I asked about him. And they were like, you know, that, they, that, that guy apparently was, like, homeless half the time. Came from, like, a super fucked up broken home. And, you know either slept in the gym or on the streets. The only clothes he had were either those workout clothes or that work uniform. And I was like, you know, it broke my heart to be honest. But, uh, but, um, and and I don't know how typical that is entirely of the boxing experience, but I don't think that's unusual in the boxing experience in this country. You do get a lot of sort of poverty stricken people who end up becoming MMA fighters. But if you see a lot of like your average MMA gym in the suburbs, it's because you're going to get some people who, yes, are affluent, who don't want to live in the city, but um, they just need more space. So uh, it's kind of like that. Again, I'm sort of talking about how there was an inversion in the suburban-urban relationship and saying that the suburbs are on the decline. To be clear, directly around the cities, there's still obviously pockets of real wealth. You know, even outside of the city here, Bethesda is very wealthy. You know, Fairfax City is very wealthy, that kind of a thing. So I don't want to overstate it. But in general, uh, it's not true that the suburban centers are more wealthy than the urban ones. Anyway, let's move on. It feels like people are starting to like Covington more and more, especially being in the arena. He got a bigger buzz, and the people around seem to like him much more than Usman. Do you think that Chael effect is happening where he was heavily disliked in the beginning and then adored and cherish, cherishes by the end of his career? Well, like I said previously, you know... I didn't see any Star Wars spoilers this week from Covington. He kind of got out of that business, you know. Um, he, uh, look, before he was like pro-Trump as a thing that he mentioned, but it wasn't like the forefront of his identity. He was out there doing spoilers and, you know, calling Mackenzie Dern Miss Piggy or whatever he was doing when she missed weight. And now he got he kind of got away from that, and instead he's just leaned heavily into the sort of he's a bit of a MAGA I think, or he's trying to fashion himself anyway as a bit of a MAGA icon. I mean, dude, like the guy literally befriended the Trump family. I mean, I don't know how close they are, but you know that 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 episode of Embedded where he's wearing a Trump hat, talking about Trump, checking into the Trump hotel, 
To me, what that has done is that has put a lot of people on his side that ordinarily wouldn't be. I think there's a lot of people who feel like, and I'm guessing here because I'm not a MAGA person, but in trying to read the tea leaves, they feel like uh, if they speak out in favor, less so now, but especially when Trump first won, you know, they would be shouted down if they said they liked him or, you know, they need more representatives like them in the mainstream or in a public eye. And so when Colby goes and, you know, metaphorically speaking, flies the flag for them, I think that they like that. Um, and if you agree with that ideology and you're part of that movement or uh, self-identifying that way, it's probably, if you didn't like Covington before, it made you rethink things. I mean, I think I've seen that. Like, his mentions on social media used to be a graveyard on every post. And now some of that's still there, of course. But a lot of it is like, yeah, Colby, you know, American flag emoji, you know, uh, and some sort of, you know, catchphrase about um, – Trump or something like that. And that is still very polarizing. Obviously, Trump is a very polarizing person. But it, while it, it enrages part of the world, it actually endears him to a different part that maybe was not endeared when he was just making fun of people that he had no relationship to and then giving out Star Wars spoilers. Um, you know, he hasn't said nerd bash 2020 or 2019 in a long time. Everything is just Trump, 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 Trump. And so... You know, as I mentioned on, on online, whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, I think there's a bigger debate to be had about it. Uh, it cast a much wider net than like the Cejudo cringe stuff. People, people kept telling me like, "Oh, you know, is Cejudo doing the Colby thing?" No, he's not. He's just making the rounds on MMA media. But Colby has, you know, the left darlings celebrated his loss. And then the right-wing darlings uh, celebrated his performance in terms of, you know, how good he looked before the loss. So, yeah, I think people are getting around to him. But the people who, the people who are turned off by his heavy pro-Trump proselytizing, I don't know that they're ever going to come around. Other than to say, if, I think if you're an MMA fan, no matter your opinion about Colby, and I'm not asking you to change it, I don't know how you watch that fight with Kamaru and come away anything other than impressed by Colby. You know, could he beat Kamaru on that night? No. Well, I don't know what welterweight on the planet could have. Maybe we'll see what happens with Jorge Masvidal, but dude, Kamaru's <laughs> Kamaru's a bad dude, man. And Colby gave him hell. Colby was up two two or on two two and then three one on two of the judges' scorecards. Yes, he was down one three on the other one, but you know, he wasn't he wasn't laying down. And uh, those, two, those guys slugged it out for 24 minutes. Dude, if you know anything about fighting and you look at that, you just got to take your hat off to it, man. You just do. And I think a lot of people wanted to make fun of him because they thought he might, you know, eke out some kind of really boring control position wrestling type of thing. You know, in many ways, that was the real BMF fight, to be honest with you. The way those guys fought, you know, there wasn't any control positions in that fight, dude. Those, those guys slugged it the fuck out. You know, you just got to get you, you gotta take your hat off to him, man. Uh, and after that, you can say he's the worst person in America. You know, he's you know he's racist or xenophobic or whatever thing you want to say about him. After that, you can say. Uh, but it, it, just evaluating what the fight was, dude, like that's big boy shit. Him and Kamaru did. Kamaru too. You got to take your hat off to Kamaru just as much, if not a tick more. You know. Um, and I so I think between those two things, between fight fans who know what time it is, and then. People of a similar political bent, yeah, people are warming up to him. But it's because he's not just spraying the block, you know, with Star Wars spoilers that pissed off everybody. Although I like that a little bit more, to be honest with you. But, you know, teach his own.
All right. So that's a question I've already answered. Um, Luke, can you please comment about the state of female athletes in MMA compared to other sports? It appears to me that they occupy a strange space where on the one hand, it's a fantastic sport for women because they are given more of a spotlight than the female competitors in a lot of other sports and have the opportunity to earn as much as male athletes, or at least there is much less of a pay gap, right? Okay, fine. I would agree. However, on the other hand, they are rampantly sexualized, and you even see mainstream media making comments about their physical attractiveness, something that is considered wildly unacceptable and unprofessional in a lot of other sports. Maybe these two things are related. By the way, this is not a subtle jab at Brian Campbell, since he is a beautiful creep who equally sexualizes all of the athletes. Yes, he does. He wants to go tip to tip with many of them. But it's a good question today. Um... I think that um, there's something about combat sports that strips fandom down to its essentials. Let me give you an example. What is what is one of the biggest rivalries in boxing from a demographic standpoint? What's one of the biggest rivalries, the ones that they celebrate and they love and they just can't get enough of? It's when Mexican boxers fight Puerto Rican boxers, right? And the history of that is like one of the most glorious wars ever, okay? I mean, the amount of talent that's come off that island of Puerto Rico is astounding. And the amount of talent that's come out of Mexico is equally, if not more, astounding, okay? I mean, we're talking about two titans in the world of boxing. Um, and they, you know, obviously they share a similar uh, religious background, cultural background to an extent, Certainly a similar language, but they are they are big time rivals, man. And so when you see a Mexican boxer and Puerto Rican boxer, like you know the Margarito Cotto War, uh, before we found out about the padded gloves, was celebrated extensively because of that. And you know, again, the list goes on from there. And part of it is you know you go to one of these things and people are just waving their flags, you know, proud to be Puerto Rican or proud to be Mexican or whatever. Like on some level, fighting uh, is about. You know, oh, I like somebody because he had a great answer at a press conference. You get some of that. You know, uh, fighting is, uh, I like this guy or I like that lady because um, she has a really interesting style. You get some of that. But that really is just what the, what the hardcores, the super in the weeds people respond to. I think on some level, fighting and the way in which it attracts the majority of the people that it attracts, because remember, the biggest audience in combat sports is its most casual. It's just about, like, who you are and at your core what you like to look at, you know, um, it's true, man. If, you know, I'm not suggesting to you that if there's an African-American fighter and a white fighter, that there's no crossover in terms of appeal, not the case. But if someone said, I'm cheering for the, the black guy, cause I'm black and I want to see those guys do well. It's sort of taken as a given. Now, it gets a little dicey. You're like, I want the white guy to win. But if you're Irish, let's just say, euphemistically, um, you know, it's part, I mean, it's just part of who we are. We have, a, we, have a, we have a proclivity, I think, as humans for sameness. And in, in that kind of sense, um, when you strip it down to its essentials about what you like, sexual attraction um, is is inevitable. Now, I agree that what you're also mixing in there is uh, a treatment of female athletes that has, you know, 
probably some historical roots in uh, misogyny or unequal treatment or whatever. But I mean, just ask yourself a question, man. Can you ever see a day where two fighters of equal ability, females, and one is uh, significantly more attractive than the other? And how would you measure that, you know, um, potential endorsements or photogenically or however you want to say that, you know, the idea that everyone is all equally attractive, I, I don't subscribe to that. So let's just assume you have that, you know, who is going to be a bigger box office attraction? I don't know how you ever root that out. Now, that's not the same thing. I don't consider that to be the same. Like, to me, that's not pernicious. Like, dude. We live in a world, man, where how attractive you are confers benefits. You know, dude, you don't mean to tell me in virtually every walk of life, pretty women don't get treated better. Now, they might be also subject to other forms of discrimination, right? They might be also subject to um, maybe if they're really pretty but also really smart, that the fact that they're smart gets kind of overlooked. That might be absolutely true. But as a general rule, it doesn't hurt in, a, in this world to be good-looking. And if you're a man, same kind of thing. Maybe not the same kind of benefits, but, you know, like, <laughs> it's just the world we live in. Uh, so I don't ever see that native impulse, that, frankly, the sort of evolutionary attraction to ever go away. Like, you are forever tied to it. I think what you're talking about is um, pay gaps uh, is that all anyone ever sees rather than like looking at maybe they are very pretty, but they're also very, very good fighters um, and not not appreciating all the other nuance to their to their identity and their personhood. Like, yes, that is clearly a pernicious problem, but I, I think that's just generational. You know, any kind of these things where you're looking at, uh, you know, discrimination in society of any form, you know, people are like, how do we root this out? You just got to wait for old people to die and then me to die and then the next generation to die and then that's really kind of it like it's hard to change people's opinions once they're kind of rooted in um so i would say i don't think you have to shy away from the fact that dude raise your hand if you like looking at pretty women am i supposed to feel bad about this no uh, am i supposed to say it's okay if uh, one of their peers gets treated differently it, well it depends what but um do we just live in a world where that's the case? Uh, and it's the case across genders, again, much more heavily on the women's side, uh, which is probably what you're speaking to. And how you solve for that, um, put, institute good policies, uh, call out bias where you see it, um, check, as Ayn Rand might say, check your own premises about how you're approaching a fight. Uh, but I think as long as the women's game keeps developing and they keep showing you the full totality of their personhood, and their ability and their skills, I think over time that is the best argument around about uh, the best argument to defeat just seeing them as some kind of sexualized object. But can you root out sexual attraction as a mechanism of marketing force? Boy, good luck with that. What kind of chance do you think Joanna has against Weili Zhang? A good one. A good one. Especially if she can keep it at distance. What is their reach differential? Let me see. What is their reach differential? So, it's two-inch reach advantage, which is not significant, but of course we know she fights long. She's taller as well, so she's got a two-inch height advantage, a two-inch reach advantage. Um, I think if 
wow, man, look at their numbers. 6.22 strikes landed per minute for Wei Li Zhang. 6.18 for Yuani and Jacek. Wow. That is, dude, that is so high. And look at their strikes absorbed. 2.24 for Wei Li Zhang. 2.73. Dude, that is ridiculous. Those are some of the best numbers I've seen for two competitors heading into a title fight ever in terms of um, striking differential. Wow. Jesus, look at this. Striking accuracy, 49% for Wei Li Zhang, 47 for Yuan Yin Jacek. How about defense? 63% to Wei Li Zhang, 65. They're nearly identical. That is crazy. That is crazy. Unbelievable. Um, uh, okay, so the question is, what chance do you give her? A very good one. I tend to think that if Joanna can really stick and move the way she did against um, Andrade, now Andrade, of course, is not really Zhang, which we already saw, but um, something like that, you know, really heavily on the kicks, that's one thing. But then, you know, if she does any push kicking, I think Zhang might catch the kick, and then a la Jorge Masvidal, Don Cerrone, use that to leap into range. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Of course, you know, making the cut is never easy for her, so we'll see how that affects her as well. Um, I, I see this one as highly competitive. Kind of a coin flip, to be honest with you. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to go. Wei Li Zhang is a... I know she's the champion, but I'm, I'm saying in the sense of perception about how good Yoana is, that is a worthy adversary, folks. That is a very worthy adversary. So, I, I, I'm going to say... I'm, what, the, what do the odds have? I, I bet you it's close to a pick em. I could be wrong about that, too, I suppose. Let's see. 246, 247. They have White, uh, Zhang Wei as a slight favorite. Uh, plus 115 for Yuana, minus 145. That will change between now and then. I expect that line to narrow. And of course, the lines are partly designed to induce betting. But, uh, dude, that's one of the best fights on the calendar, man. It's one of the best fights on the calendar. Those, those two ladies are incredibly talented. And um, very modern games, too, right? Like... They can do everything they need to do very well. I'd say much more so for Weili Zhang, but um, the things that Yuana is very good at, I don't think Zhang is as good at. But, I mean, their numbers are not accidental. Incredible. Of the following fighters, who do you think will be wearing the gold belt at the end of 2020? Tatiana Suarez, Corey Sandhagen, Zabit Megamed Sharapov, Jeff Neal. Well, Suarez, I would have said her, but the injury thing makes me nervous about saying that. Jeff Neal, I think, is about to break through, but he's a little bit unproven. At, not unproven at Walter Wade in the sense that I think he's some kind of, um, oh, the bubble's about to burst. That's not what I'm saying. But now he's entering that top 10 space. Let's see how he does there. So beating Magomed Sharapov has a chance, but I don't think he beats Volkanovski. I think the only guy who beats Volkanovski is Max until something else changes. What what Volkanovski does is, as I said, you know, ad infinitum at this point. Like, here's the division, and then on Saturday, here was Max, and then right a tick above uh, is Alex. But they're close in my judgment. They're, it's possible. Zabit might do well early, but, you know, Volkanovski's going to put a pace on him. And that's a five-round fight. Sandhagen is the interesting one to me. Now, there are some things to worry about, which is Sanhagen takes a little bit more punches than I like. And at 135, you got some big-ass punchers up there. Now, he faced a big one in John Lineker, of course. But still, um, Lineker is a big puncher and not a whole lot else. Whereas you got some guys, as he moves up the food chain, that are big punchers and you know very technical with it, with the way they deliver it. And they can do a lot more than, um, 
you know, just punch real hard and defend the takedown. I'm obviously oversimplifying Lineker's game, but I don't I don't think it's unfair to say that there's other guys who are more technical than he is. So I would say of those, I'd, I'd go Sandhagen. I'd go Sandhagen um, with Suarez as a possibility if she can get her health right. That's just the only issue. She's still kind of sitting out there since the um, – who did she beat? She beat um, uh, Nunez's uh, – Nina Ansaroff. Luke Thomas, two first names. Huh? What the fuck is up with that? Not merely that, two first names, two last names. What the fuck is up with that? Blame my parents. Uh, all right. But at least they didn't give me a name like, I don't know, Mackenzie or something. It's fine for a girl, but like, what would a dude's name be that's weird? Thayer or some shit, you know, some super waspy name. Uh, okay, since the 10-point scoring system isn't ideal for MMA as it is for boxing, what ideas, if any, do you have for a better system? Also, do you agree that they should have more judges who are also knowledgeable, like ex-fighters or coaches? Thank you for everything. I put a video up from this one, and I saw there was a higher degree of downvotes because anytime you say anything about Joe Rogan other than I think he is God, his fans lose their mind. It's like, dude, like, are we not allowed to disagree? How do you think we're going to get better ideas if we don't debate and disagree? Just by listening to somebody present... You know, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, and that's just what we do. Like, how is it you think you get better ideas in any system, in any community, if you don't debate the, the relative merits of them? It just always shocks me about that. It's like, dude, I'm not even going after Joe. Like, and even if I did, you, you think anything I say about Joe is going to negatively affect his career? Like, he, Joe is Joe has killed it to the point where he is like an institutional power at this point. There's nothing I could say that would ever detract, nor do I have any interest in, in trying to tear Joe down. But I just don't agree with all of his ideas that he said on the podcast with Max Holloway. So let's answer them because this is relative to that one. First, do you have any ideas for a better system? I would be interested in trying a lot of different ideas. I tend to think that people who say um, the half-point system would be better are wrong. Let me get to that in a second. My hunch is that the fewer like hardcore rules you have about it, the better. Uh, in other words... I tend to think that in a sport where you have this explosion of creative expression and this melding of all these different worlds, a little bit more of a hands-off approach tends to net a better outcome. So I like the pride rule. I like the one championship rule where it's judge the fight as a whole. That's just my personal opinion. I can't prove that it's better. I think you need to have more data, which gets me back to the half-point system or open scoring or anything else like that. There are a lot of people who walk around and say things like, wow, if you had had an open scoring in, in uh, Holloway versus Volkanovsky or Whitaker versus Romero or any kind of fight where it really went down to the wire in, in a back-and-forth contest, you would have gotten a different fight. That seems like a reasonable assumption, but until it is effectively instituted at any kind of an elite level, you are just guessing and the rules in mixed martial arts are hard to change. If we're going to change them, my view is that we need a strong and pretty unequivocal evidentiary basis upon which to draw that conclusion, upon which to make that change. As it stands, uh, maybe you could get one with the judging the fight as a whole, but I think that would require significant debate about the relative merits of it. And beyond that, whatever else idea that might be out there, half points rather than the one point, um, taking more away for X and Y. Uh, I know I think it's Jungle Fight, as Gary McCruz reported. 
you know, if you miss weight by a certain amount, they begin to take points, which by the way, there is evidence that that tends to work, right? There's an evidentiary basis, but a lot of people say to themselves, more judges might be better. Open scoring might be better. I'm not telling you you're wrong. I mean, these seem like fairly interesting ideas, but your ideas are, are, uh, your first order ideas need to be fully engaged with reality because there's often externalities you just don't and can't consider. It might change fights for the better. It might change fights for the worst. Um, how would you pay eight judges? And this is what I mentioned in my video about Joe. It's like, oh, there should be eight to nine judges. Dude, how the fuck are you going to do that? You know, yes, um, one response could be, well, there are people who have some fighting experience who don't get selected in certain states because there might be a bit of an old boys network there where they just select who they know who have tenure who are not as good as people who are trying. That I, That is very true. That's a very plausible argument, and I think that is actually a problem that needs to be addressed. On the other hand, um, part of the issue is that state budgets don't have a lot of money to give to athletic commissions, and I, I can't tell you how many commissioners I've told this to how many willing applicants do you have with a martial arts background that you could train up within a year or two um, to rotate out who you currently have? Not counting California and Nevada, the answer is virtually none. It, the, the biggest problem is recruitment. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to spend their Saturday night doing it for anything other than the reasons why an old person might because they got fuck else to do. This is their world. This is who they know. They might have been around boxing for a long time, or they might have some martial arts experience too. Um, but there's just not enough people. And then the, the question about refs and, and coaches, this is the thing. It's like, I don't know why, like, oh, you know, Frank Trigg, when I've seen him referee, has been excellent. I've not seen him do work as a uh, judge yet, but I'm sure that that will probably be pretty good as well. It's not, it's not some kind of mystery to me that, like, having experience at a high level in mixed martial arts confers a lot of benefit potentially for being a ref and a judge, but understand something. When you go into a state and you put on the, the, the gloves and you wear the, the the crest of the State Athletic Commission, you are operating in the context of the state's bylaws. There are rules that, you, A, you have to know, and they're extensive in certain cases. There are rules you have to know, and you have to know how those rules apply to a medical intervention, to a stoppage, to the taking of a points. This idea that because you fought, these are things you automatically know is simply not true. Most fighters have, again, a wide diversity of ideas. There's not just like one fighter idea about things. And then two, you can't just say, well, okay, would you stop this fight here under these conditions or would you not? Well, given my experience, I would. Your experience means fuck all in the sense of that, like, that, that's, the, that's the basis upon which you can make a call. You make a call based on what the rules in the state say you make a call on. Now... In that sense, you lean on your experience, and that's where it becomes valuable as this, you know, erudition of what constitutes an effective position, um, you know, damage, uh, understanding how a fighter might react or whatever. That is helpful. Um, but the idea that that can't be taught to other outside parties is not true. Now, that's harder to teach if they don't have any martial arts experience. I do think that the better argument is... You don't need fighters. Uh, might be helpful to have them. What you need are people with martial arts experience. You know, guys who have rolled for a few years or um, boxed or, you know, did Muay Thai for, you know, maybe have a couple amateur bouts or something. Uh, and then really train them up. Dude, I can't overstate this. Why don't you ever hear things like, you know who'd be a great referee in the National Football League? Tony Romo. Why don't you ever hear that? Those guys who ref, some of them might be former players, maybe at the high school or collegiate level, even the pros to some extent. 
It's because they can train them up with their coursework and their experience and that process that they have, the system in place to make, again, you can say what you want about NFL referees, but they're a union. They're, they're very good. Okay, again, relative to what you saw what happened when they brought in the scrubs a couple of years ago, right? You were like, oh my God, I can't wait for the days where Ed Hockley comes back and flexes his guns, right? Why don't, why don't you ever hear that in any other sport? Because it's not necessary. I'm not suggesting to you it's not helpful, but number one, lots of fighters have wrong ideas about the rules. Lots of fighters don't know the rules. Lots of fighters would need to have their instincts retrained and... There's not many of them. They're not walking through the door. Uh, and when they do, they often bring up a bit of a conflict of interest problem. You see that in New Jersey when they have to get Ricardo Almeida to ref certain bouts or not or judge certain bouts or not. And that's not the end of the world, but that's still another problem you have to address. Dude, what you need are some people with some real martial arts experience and then who are willing to dive deep into the world of officiating. Officiating is a skill that can be but doesn't necessarily need to be aided by fighting. It's just not true. It's just there's just there's not a lot of evidence that that is true. That you can't train up someone to be an excellent referee, um, who who never fought. It's also equally true that someone who fought might be a better candidate in certain circumstances. But that pool is narrow. It's a volunteer army. They're not signing up. Officiating is a very 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 distinct skill. Understand that. So I do think you need some martial arts experience. The value of mount. What, what kind of mounts are different? The, you know, the, the, the mount where you're hip to hip in, on the ribs, underneath the armpits. What does it mean when they roll to their back? I mean, you got to really know the intricacies of jiu-jitsu positions, which you can understand a fighter might have. But to me, it's like, the way I would consider it is it's like, oh, this guy was a Formula One driver. Um, could he be a UPS delivery driver? It's like, okay, well, the fact that you understand so much about cars will probably help in the, you know, navigating a big truck. But there's like this whole other skill set to delivering packages that has nothing to do with driving the truck. I mean, that's a big part of it, but you know that alone doesn't mean shit. You have to know how to navigate through a city. You have to know how to arrange your delivery. You have to know what the process is you're looking for. You have to know how to you know you have to be able to carry the box. It's so much more. So that's my only point. It's like you know, oh, we should have eight nine judges. Yeah, I mean, we should have lots of shit, but like that's just not realistic. It's not realistic. And it's not like going after Joe like, oh, I think Joe's terrible. Joe is not terrible. But uh, his celebrity and his popularity, while I don't think accidental, I think he's earned all of it, it just doesn't make him infallible. It doesn't make me infallible. I encourage you to push back on any idea that I'm promoting here. We don't get better until we figure this out. And the last thing I would say is to get a system of implementation, of, or rather a system of experimentation, we can wait till other promoters come around to it, or the UFC, and I've been saying this forever, can go to places where it self-regulates and it can experiment. We're not going to know if open scoring works until we try it first and see, and then we can say, okay, well, yeah, we, we thought it might help people do better in a fifth round where it's close, and that's true, but maybe more often than not, it, it discourages behavior or something. I, I don't know. I don't know. Or we find out that that was the magic pill that we needed all along. But it needs to be experimented on. It needs, it needs a lot of data before we change the rules. Because once we change them, man, it is hard to undo them. Uh, why do you choose to watch La Liga over the Premier League? I know you support Real Madrid. What made you choose them? Well, I fell in love with Spain and then the city. And then with that came Real Madrid. Of course, it didn't hurt when Hamas went over there, although his tenure there has been less than stellar recently. But... Um, 
I just thought that the Madrid and Barcelona rivalry was just much more interesting. Um, I still do. Uh, I just love I just love Real Madrid. I love everything that they stand for. I mean, not the Franco stuff. Obviously, that's a little bit of a bad look, <laughs> putting it mildly. But I just mean, you know, uh, and I like these leagues that are a little bit lopsided because I like Champions League a lot too. So, you know, Bayern and um, uh, Borussia Dortmund, uh, you know, essentially they um, – they exist in these leagues where they can beat up on the rest of the competition. Not totally. You know, obviously Atletico exists there as well. And, and occasionally you have a year where Valencia is really good. Or you have a year where, um, you know, um, I don't know, Leganes is okay. Or um, I think last year it was Celta Vigo was pretty good, you know. Uh, Iago Aspas played for them. Um, but in general, I just found that the Barcelona-Madrid rivalry was just so historic and so interesting that I just wanted to pay attention to that. You know, who doesn't respect the Premier League, right? I mean, you just it's just exciting all the time. I'm not I'm not taking it away from you. But like people overstated a little bit too in the following sense. They're like, Oh man, Premier League is just better when it's like well, yeah, when it's Chelsea versus Man City or when it's the, you know, uh the Manchester Derby or when it's um you know, Arsenal and Tottenham. Okay, those are you know, when it's the top six, top eight, that's great. Y'all think I give a fuck about Wolves? Or Southampton, or you know, Aston Villa, or whatever the f- I don't care about. And, and, and to me, that's just not. There's not a ton of difference between that and watching, you know, uh, Sevilla or something like that. Well, Sevilla actually is a, a Europa League winning team, so you know, I don't know, um, you know, Espanyol, right? The other, the other uh, Catalan team there next to Barcelona. It's just not that different to me. So. But you know, when they're champions, I mean, Liverpool is just unbelievable. They're a machine, right? And they're 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 brilliant to watch. And Anfield seems Anfield's on the bucket list. I'll put it that way. I got to go to Anfield. I, I want to go to all of them. I want to go to the Emirates. I want to go to, you know, um, I want to go to all of them. So uh, maybe not Everton. Everton I can skip, but uh, the rest I'm down with. All right, we get a couple more of these in, then we'll go to some of the paid questions. As I always say, you don't have to do. Um, you don't have to do the paid stuff. If you do it, I'll get to it, but you don't have to. The post-fight stuff, it's a little bit more you know, of a requirement, but on these live chats, I try to make them as free and as accessible as I can to everybody. Okay. Um, does Covington's loss hurt him as bad as people thought it would? I'm not seeing a meteoric fall, in part because he performed so ably. Like, that's my point. Like, you can't be a real fight fan and be like, yo, he got his broad jaw broken. Okay. Right, he did. And then fought through it. I mean, you can be happy that he lost if you don't like him, but you just can't. You just, dude, like, you can say Kamaru was the better guy and the power was the difference, and I wouldn't argue with any of it. I think that's all right. But you can't say he fought like, you know, he, that's what you want when a fighter is on, it's all in the line. They're, they're trying to step up. It's what you want. So. There you go. Um, oh, here we get to the crazy ones. All right. Favorite living philosophers. Mine is Alan uh, Plantinga. Uh, I mentioned him last week because he's done so much interesting work on um, bioethics and then sport ethics as it relates to drugs and gene therapy. So I'll say Julian Savalescu. Check him out. A lot of the better work in that regard is being done over by European professors. I'm not entirely certain why. 
maybe because European sport is much more closely tied to Olympic sport. Uh, and like, for example, cycling is bigger there than I think it is here. Um, you know, that kind of a thing. I, I don't, I don't entirely know, but, uh, that's my hunch. All right, we'll do this impeachment one and I'll, and then I'll move on. Let me say this before I get to it. If you are a, if you are a Trump supporter, don't check out. I'm not, I'm going to try to not, I'm going to look for some consensus here. I mean that sincerely. I'm not trying to do a bit. I'm not, I'm not, I, I, you think I want less viewers? I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat my opinion, but I don't want you to, to walk away from, from something because uh, it's just sort of just nakedly and unfairly partisan. So the question is, why are the House Democrats impeaching the president even though it will likely fail in the Senate? It's, I mean, it's going to fail in the Senate. Not looking to throw the pot, just a political idiot. I don't think that's an unfair question. I think a lot of Americans are asking themselves that. Um, okay, so again, if you're a Trump person, just give me a second here. I'm going to tell you how I feel, but just just hold on. So there's a couple of reasons from a game theory political perspective why I think this is happening. One is that whatever your current opinion of the merits of Trump's malfeasance, alleged or otherwise, let's assume for a second it's a different scenario. Let's assume for a second that the same political dynamic is in play and that um, the case against that theoretical president is overwhelming. Like anybody with half a brain can see it. You know, they got him. I mean, they literally have them saying, let's collude with Russia or something like that. Right? Let's let's give out bribes, you know, caught on tape. But you knew that the rival political party was unwilling to, and again, I'm, I'm not suggesting to you this is exactly what's happening because I'll get to it, but uh, imagine that the rival political party was simply unwilling to acknowledge these crimes. You would still want to impeach the president in that particular circumstance because you would believe that putting some kind of a check on his presidency is important. Like if he just did nothing, um, what kind of message would that send? Uh, if he gets impeached, but then ultimately the, the trial in the Senate doesn't do anything, there still is this stain, which by the way I think is a big driving factor for the for the left on this. There's a stain on the presidency, right, third, fourth, whatever president it would end up being, to be impeached uh, in, in history. It sort of puts him in a, in a uh, ignoble group to an extent, um, and that you might lose, but it might might be the morally appropriate thing to do. Um, that's one explanation that you are allowed to at least consider. The other one is, remember, this is both a constitutional process as well as a political process. And there might be a political calculation in place given the 2020 election that this could be some kind of a way to make the president look bad. Uh, and if you looked at the historical research around the time of Nixon, that initially when um, his misdeeds were reported on, there was broad skepticism about whether or not impeachment was an appropriate remedy to what had happened. And as the facts of the case began to get presented to the public, there was a major shift in opinion. Now, I don't see evidence that that is happening here. Uh, but that is at least in theory one reason why you might go forward with it. Sure, it might fail in the Senate, but if you believe in the strength of your case, you present it to the public and then you hope that that... Um, sways people. But, you know, that to me seems a little bit naive uh, about the nature of Trump's popularity and uh, how 
resilient his audience is. His audience is going to ride or die with him for the most part. Uh, I think a lot of people may not like the fact that he has various verbal indiscretions time to time, but in general, the economy, at least in terms of what you can see on Wall Street, is doing quite well. Um, and for a variety of reasons, they might like what he stands for. Putting my cards on the table very briefly. Um, I tend to think that this is all, I don't know if it's a mistake, I tend to think that this will be, if something that they, the, the party felt like they needed to do, the Democratic Party, it, uh, as a constitutional and democratic responsibility, it will ultimately serve to be either neutral or a political mistake. Because I tend to think that it will embolden his audience to uh, and his fans and his voters to uh, return to the polls for what they might frame as a not an unconstitutional process, although they're kind of using that language. I mean, it's, they're following the Constitution, but they're trying to undo the election, which, by the way, I don't think is a bad argument. I mean, you can say that, um, oh, uh, these charges are worthy of impeachment, and let's assume for a second that is true. It's also true that they have been uncomfortable with his presence in the White House, not without good reason, but they have been uncomfortable with it since day one. And any mechanism to remove him from office, I think they're willing to entertain, valid or otherwise. Um, I don't think that's an entirely dismissible argument. And then uh, beyond that, um, you know, we've just seen this over and over again. Oh, we put up these tariffs that are affecting farmers. We go to the farmers who voted for Trump. What do you think? Well, it's not great, but, um, you know, I haven't changed my opinion. There's a There's a resiliency that he and his audience have that I think the Democratic establishment just simply is un- incapable of recognizing. Um, and they just they just don't want to do it. And it goes back to the point about trying to undo the election. This is the other part about it. Um, look, man, I don't think highly of Trump. I wouldn't vote for him for dog catcher. To me, he is such an obvious uh, grifter of the highest order. I find his appeal baffling, to be candid with you. However, uh, I, I think that this impeachment process, at worst, or rather at best, will just end up bringing this back to nowhere, and at worst will end up being a massive political favor to him because in the end, what the Democratic establishment simply fails to recognize is whatever your views of his malfeasance, yeah, maybe you can't do anything about it. Uh, Sorry, maybe you can't say, oh, we'll just let it pass because it's a political mistake. But that's fine, I suppose, as one way of, uh, of justifying the act. But the real problem with them is that they have simply lost touch with uh, I think the issues many Americans care about, I think they have lost touch with their previously blue-collar, um, southern, midwestern voters. They have become largely Trump voters at this point. And I read this article years ago by this guy who was trying to battle Hugo Chavez's appeal in Venezuela. This is not to say that Trump and Chavez are the same, but they have a big cult of personality that results in having a very sticky audience. And what he said was, dude, you can try and attack this guy for all the undemocratic norms you want. You can try and say everything he does is dangerous and any other thing. The supporters, you know, you might get some, but it's really not an effective tactic. The effective tactic is to is to is to win votes. Just beat him at the polls. That's not the polls, well the um the uh well yes, the polls I suppose. Not the you know election. You got to beat him in the voting booth. And that means you have to have an establishment that is really focused on turnout, that is focused on the issues, that is focused on why did the Democrats lose such a enormous base of support to the point where Paul Begala noted it's African-American voters and college professors and nary a person in between. Really, 
to me, a lot of this is just a lot of misplaced energy, to be quite candid with you. I mean, you know, I'm watching it kind of from afar just to keep up with it a little bit, but I'm not watching any of the cable news. I don't care about anybody's takes about it because in the end, we're going to end up back where we are at best. If, if, if they are serious about unseating Trump, um, this is not the way to do it. This is not the way to do it. And um, if you're a Democratic voter and you think that your establishment is – by the way, I'm not registered with the Democratic Party. I don't like them, to, to clear that up. Um, you think this is the best way to handle it. I think you are deeply mistaken. This is, to me, evidence that uh, they have their priorities on these means that, however justified you might think, this is not going. This is you might think this is an utterly justified constitutional effort. This is not. This is not an effective solution to. Um, tells me they don't understand where he got elected, and it tells me they don't understand how to beat him in the next election. That's what it tells me, and I may have not understood how he got elected the first time, but now I get it. I completely get it, and as a consequence, you need to appeal. This is simple. Here, you you want to unseat Trump appeal to his voters who have platforms and uh, around or you, you, around healthcare around um, around education around broad issues that could uh, around uh, working conditions around uh, these kinds of consensus building ideas that could cross party lines but they're just focused on making Trump look bad which is not that hard to do, but is not going to work. All right, enough of that. Let's get to your questions. Here, let me pop this out. Okay. Julian says, Erdegaard, which is how I think you pronounce that, and Benzema can be a dangerous partnership. His loan deal lasts until 2021. Do you think Madrid should bring him back for the 2021 season? Yes. When he first came over, there was some real question. I think you know uh, about how good he was, and he didn't blossom all that much. He has, in the case of Odegaard, he has looked, or Odegaard, however you say it, has looked brilliant. He has really come around. I am super excited uh, about him coming back. And who's the Japanese kid? I think they sent to Real Sociedad, who looks like he could be the genuine article as well. And and but then look at Rodrigo. Look, and, Vinici- and Vinicius and Rodrigo together played well in the last game. Granted, it was against an overmatched team, but still, like, th- there's there's still this turnover that hasn't happened in Madrid because you've got all these Modrices and Cruises and, you know, Casemiro played brilliantly but uh, in the last game. But, you know what I'm saying, there's like a lot of institutions. I mean, it's hard to unseat somebody at Madrid who's been there a long time in certain cases. Um, but this next round of youth, man, they look so promising. Lightning round picks. Colby Covington versus Tyron. I'll go Colby. Douglas Lima versus Jorge. Ooh. Wow, what a good question. Um, wow. Wow, I, well, that's a brilliant one. Wow. Jorge, I guess. Darren Till versus Jack Hermanson. Jack, for now. Jose Aldo or Peter Yan? Peter Yan. How come there is so little talk about the stri- series of strikes to the back of the head of Colby right before the Goddard right before Goddard stopped the fight? This was asked of me on my live chat and I or so my post fight special and I didn't know the answer to it and I still don't. I've reached out to two referees; they don't want to talk. 
Shocker. Um, I know one answer is if you move into something, if you're like resisting a, uh, an opponent or you're trying to do something and you kind of move into it and you get hit there, they don't really care. Or at least it's not, they're not going to penalize the person who hit you. I just think there's so little, I mean, these situations are so chaotic, they're so fluid that if they, if they don't seem overly burdensome, the effect of the hammer fist, they kind of just let it go. But it's a great question. We see it all the time. It's not really true for the Colby fight. It's true for a lot of fights. I'm not saying that I think Colby would have won but for those because I don't think that's true. But I don't think it's unfair to ask either if you're a Colby fan or you're just in the in, in the interest of fairness of saying, dude, like this is not okay. It's not. I, but I don't I'm, – I'm, I'm having a hard time getting an answer. Salutations from Dublin. Hello, Ireland. Uh, big fan of the show. Thank you for all your content. I can't help but feel what Colby has been able to achieve with his shtick is not far off from genius tier marketing. I wouldn't call it genius tier um, at all. But what I would say is it was, you know, you befriended the Trump family and then became an icon for them. That's certainly takes some effort and there's a degree of vision to it. Now, the question is the tactics that he used. Uh, are they gross and you know, um, the kind of thing that you want at scale in the game. That needs to be addressed as well. Do you think the UFC has ever paid to throw a fight or not show up come fight night? Well, if they did, they'd lose their license. I will say this. One way or the other, whether in the UFC or Strikeforce or Bellator or overseas, especially overseas, at some point in your life, you've seen a thrown fight. The question is, um, did you notice it? And the chances are probably not. From New Zealand, and Merry Christmas, Luke. Thanks for all you do. Merry Christmas, donks. Is there a correlation between male pattern baldness and fighting ability? Asking on behalf of donks on Sherdog. Doubt it. Do you use or plan on using any hair loss products? Uh, I don't use any. I'm, not, I'm thinning a little bit, but I'm not too bad. Um, probably won't. I'll probably just shave it off when it goes. UFC 300. Brock Lesnar versus both Diaz brothers. Who wins? Oh, Diaz brothers. Yes, brothers. Open scoring with the rounds displayed on the Jumbotron, yay or nay? Let's try it, and then we'll make a determination. Let's experiment. Let's experiment. Let's do it, y'all. Luke, I'm considering moving to Columbia because I can work from home. That would not be a good reason to move to Columbia. How do you meet? How did you meet your wife? And do you have any suggestions that may help me when I visit for the first time, or move there eventually? Motherfucker, I would not move to Columbia just because I could work from home. That is not a good reason to go there. Uh, <laughs> do you speak Spanish? Do you know the language? Uh, do you understand the culture at all? Um, also, the Wi-Fi there is uh, not great. Uh, what's how, I met my wife here. Secondly, um, suggestions that may help me when I visit for the first time. Get a tour guide. Happy holidays, Luke. I've noticed a more jubilant tone and overall happier attitude in you in the recent past. Are you happier with your schedule nowadays? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of business deals I'm working on that's going to free up some time for me, but uh, in general, I am happier because, I mean, look at the numbers on, this, on these live chats. I do better numbers on these than I ever did when, in the previous iteration. Now, not every time, but in general, it's like so much better. Hickson in his prime versus Andre Galvao in Nogi sub. Who wins? Andre Galvao. I think Andre washes him. Yeah, I don't know about washes him, but I think he wins. Um, let's see. Spread love. It's the Brooklyn way. Yes, sir. 
How do you think a super fight between Khabib and Kamaru Usman will go down? People have been asking me this one. I think Kamaru is probably just too big for him. But I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. I tend to think it probably is a bit of a stalemate because you know Khabib's not going to strike with him that much. He will just wrestle. So it ends up... Oh, I cracked my fucking phone. Mother... I tend to think that uh, Kamaru would probably stalemate a lot of it, but it's an interesting one. I guess I would lean Kamaru just because of the size and the, obviously skill in wrestling. But uh, it's an interesting one. This is why everyone uh, loves you, Luke. You don't, have to, you don't have to pay in a super chat. Expect nothing, get everything. Expect everything, get nothing. Um, yeah, someone corrupted put in 50 bucks. Thank you. By the way, you're asking what this money goes to. It goes to a lot, believe me. Um, someone says, what are your thoughts on Gordon Ryan previously saying that he would solely be using Danaher for all his MMA training? Well, Danaher seems to have a clean, clear understanding of the game in ways that I'll never will. Um, that's as true for uh, jiu-jitsu as it might be for MMA. I tend to think that John will augment his own training with expertise outside of it, like a Faraz Zahabi or something like that. So I would not imagine that it would be John Danaher teaching him striking, but um, overseeing some of it, yeah, for sure. I mean, Danaher and Gordon have a very close relationship, right? So uh, it would be weird if he wasn't training with him in a very direct and full-throated capacity. Rank in order of most fun to least. Beat, malpractice, serious, bloody elbow, morning combat, MMA hour, tech breakdown this show. I mean, they were all pretty fun, dude. I've had good jobs. I mean, I had a good time at all of them. At the end, I got burned out with some of the stuff at uh, my last gig, but I can't say that they were bad jobs. I didn't really enjoy the MMA hour that much. I'll be honest about that. But even then, it wasn't, I mean, was that a bad job? It wasn't a bad job. But, you know, I didn't have as much fun. I had a lot, I had a lot of fun on this channel. Morning Combat, I mean, do I even need to tell you? Bloody Elbow was just such a great experience. Serious, I love. Uh, the Malpractice Live Chat, again, I got burned out on that at the end. But, um, you know, here we are. And then MMA Beat. I mean, who didn't, you know, I'm lucky to have had these jobs. You know, anybody who tells you otherwise is just a, is just a fool. Um, you know, when this, when this is all over, I had a great run. You know, I got as far as I got, but I had a great run. I had a great run. So, you know, I got burned out in places, and I didn't really love the MMA hour, if I can be honest with you. But uh, I can't complain. I won't complain. You know, I'm lucky to have all of them. And then the last one, what's your opinion of the Mandalorian show? I'll tell you what. Episode one, I loved. Episode two, I was like, okay. Episode three, I was like, holy shit, this show is amazing. Four and five, I, I didn't hate. But I was like, mm, Gina Carano thing was cool, but the dog people, I wasn't all in. Yeah, whatever, there were some parts of the plot I didn't enjoy. But then I, uh, I had missed episode six and seven, so I watched them a couple days ago. Oh my God, they were great. In particular, seven. The cliffhanger in episode seven was amazing. I loved it. So I'm digging it, man. I'm really, really digging it. And then, uh, you know, I won't say what he does, but Bill Burr is in episode six. And he does a great job, too. You know, so I'm just, I'm loving it. I'm really, really loving The Mandalorian. And I'm gonna, I got tickets to go see Rise of Skywalker on Sunday. On Sunday. I'm a little bit worried it's going to be one of those, like, films that makes the donks feel happy and the critics bad. I know a lot of folks hated The Last Jedi, and there's a lot to hate about The Last Jedi. Like, the Mary Poppins shit with Princess Leia was terrible. And then, like, you know, I don't mind political, dis there actually was a political discussion in the movie that everyone missed. But the ham-handed one, or I should say ham-fisted one. Where they're in the casino and everyone is like, hur, 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 you know, that one with you know, and freeing the 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 large like hyena looking dog motherfuckers, 
all that sucked. I hated all that. But the thing about the, uh, that I loved, uh, I um, the last Jedi. We we live in an age where we have declining institutions, declining trust in media institutions, declining trust in uh, political establishment, declining trust and failure of the elites. And that movie is about that. What do you do when your sacred institutions fail you? What do you do? What happens to your world? That is so much more interesting to me than, you know, Yoda lifting a fucking X-Wing out of the Dagobah system river or whatever. And that's cool too. I love all that. But I thought all of that just got lost in, oh, I didn't like the fact that they, you know, burned the Jedi Temple. Dude, burned that fucker to the ground. That's an unsettling thing, but it's a much more interesting movie. And yeah, they fucked it up with plot holes and the Mary Poppins thing. I'm not, I won't argue with any of that. But in general, uh, the, the undertone about the failure of the world around you, it mirrors the world that we live in. And I think people wanted an escape from that, but I wanted it reproduced in a more interesting and novel way, and I thought that they got that right. All right, last two. What workouts do you think help out in BJJ? My friend Seth Smith always says this. You want to get better at BJJ, you don't need to train to go get started. Just go do it. And if you're talking about supplementary ones, Mike Isratel, the guy who co-wrote this book, Scientific Principles of Strength Training, uh, has a whole video out on how to do that on his YouTube channel. Go check it out. Last, I've spent money several times whenever I'm, whenever I'm available to catch your live streams. Another 50 bucks from Corrupted Jesus. I generally don't mind when you spend the money. Uh, I hope you spend it wherever you wish to. Personal equipment, dinner, and drinks with a wife. Well, it doesn't. All this money goes right into my PayPal account, which is my business account. So uh, I wouldn't dream of doing that. And I'm, you know, I have enough, you know, I'm comfortable enough with my other gigs to do that. This is a business expense for me. So um, it goes to business expenses. Hey, guys, I got to get out of here. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, Kwanzaa again, Hanukkah, the whole bit, whatever you celebrate. I'm I, I don't I don't I'm not a practicing religion person, but happy holidays just the same. Thank you guys for making this what this is. We got one more live chat this year, one more special one. If you want some, you want me to do something different for that one, hit me up with some ideas. Luke Thomas News at gmail.com. Luke Thomas News at gmail.com. Um, don't drink and drive over the holidays. Be safe. Be merry. If you got to travel, take a deep breath. Hope you get some noise-canceling headphones. If not, buy them for yourselves if you can. But no matter what happens, man, thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. And until next time, stay frosty.